Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. And um, let me just say, I, I've been in the foundations class for the last five weeks, and I have missed out on being able to be in here for the music. And I'm sure those of you that were in the class missed out on it as well. It's been, it was just a, just so great this morning to be able to worship with you all, uh, <coughs> excuse me, here in song this morning. Uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing our series in Ephesians. And we've been going through uh, Ephesians. And before I kind of get started, I'd like to uh, share a story with you. This is actually a true story. And some of you may remember when this actually took place. Uh, it was in the national news. So I'm just going to give you a quick kind of synopsis of what went down here. In 2005, a New York judge rendered an unusual verdict that made national headlines. The case involved an unhappy couple who did not want to live together, but who also did not want to leave their home. So the judge approved a plan submitted by the husband, of course it had to be submitted by the husband, right? Uh, to build a wall down the middle of their house. The wife would live on the third floor and half of the second with the three of the children while the husband and a fourth child will reside on the other half of the second floor and the first. And so, in December of 2006, all the neighbors gathered to watch workmen install a physical barrier between the conflicting couple. The wall did not end the conflict, however. The thermostat control was on the husband's side. <laughs> and, and the wife complained that, that he adjusted the settings to make her miserable. Each spouse accused the other of bugging the phones and spying through video cameras. And the wife said the husband paid people to bang on the walls and set off the alarms. After years of fighting, another judge ordered them to sell the home and split the proceeds. After spending millions of dollars in legal fees, their conflict cost them their marriage and their home. Those passing by this beautiful Brooklyn brownstone might have enjoyed the happy couple uh, they imagined living inside. A stranger would have seen uh, the husband's regular attendance in the local synagogue and perhaps heard how he fed the poor. The wife's expensive clothes displayed the, her affluence to the world. Yet soon the rich facade and the sad charade were all exposed as, the couple's, as were the couple's misery and their conflict. Their pettiness and strife embarrassed their family, shamed their synagogue, divide, divided their children, cost them their home, their wealth, their reputation, their marriage, and their happiness. They are a living testimony to what it says in Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Tragically and unfortunately, the family's sad situation describes many church families today. We may, we may come to church and we can put on this great exterior, but we're hiding all the shame and all the pain that's within. Beautiful stained glass images on the outside are a stark, stark contrast of the ugliness that conflicts on the inside. The appearance of wealth, 
It really conceals a deep spiritual bankruptcy. Though churches may not build walls to physically separate its people, the personal and social walls were just, are just as effective. When believers fight, their pettiness and fighting embarrass their Christian family, shame their church, divides God's children, and costs them their peace, joy, credibility, and sometimes even their ministries. Everyone who has experienced church conflict will confirm, just as I already said in Proverbs 17.1, that better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a church full of feasting and strife. Feasting with strife. You know, the importance of Christian unity, it's emphasized in Ephesians chapter 4, which is our main passage that we're going to be talking about today. In verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul pleads with the believers to live in a manner worthy of their calling. And this means, first and foremost, living in loving harmony with other believers. Verses 1 through 3 gives the call to walk in unity, and then verses 4 through 6 reveal the basis for that walking in unity. And we're going to get into that today. These two sections are actually closely connected, and according to Bill McDonald, all six verses are actually a single sentence in the original Greek language. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed going verse by verse in the book of Ephesians as we've gone through this over the last several months. What a great letter that was written by Paul. Today, we're actually officially halfway through the book of Ephesians. And as we mentioned, we'll be starting chapter 4. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul talks about our doctrine and our riches in Christ. <clears throat> or our calling. And in the last three chapters, really explain our duty or our responsibilities in Christ. There's this key word in the last three chapters of Ephesians, and, it's the, it's, and the emphasis is on the word walk. So in other words, we are urged to walk worthy of his calling. Paul has told us to walk in what? Walk in unity, walk in purity, walk in harmony, and walk in victory. Today, we're going to be covering the first six verses of chapter 4, the beginning of walking in unity. If you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV translation this morning. Paul says this, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's open in a word of prayer this morning. Lord, 
We come before you today as sinners who've been saved by your grace. We come here this morning asking your help to guide us and lead us as we strive to walk in humility, gentleness, patience. Help us to bear one another in love, Lord. Lord, we fall short time and time again. Yet your love is unconditional. You showed us the perfect example of what it looked like as you walked upon this earth and ultimately went to the cross at Calvary for each and every one of us. Lord, as we open your word this morning, may it speak to our hearts. May it speak to our minds and cause us to see the error in our ways. May it show us the blind spots that we have in our lives. May it show us the areas that we need to correct. May it show us to walk in unity this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this body of believers here at Bethany. And Lord, just please give me the right words to say. And Lord, if I, if I mess up and say something I, that's wrong, just may it be stricken from the minds of those here today. May they hear you this morning, not me. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, Paul starts out here in chapter 4 by saying, therefore. And my daughter loves this when I always say, when it starts out with therefore, what's the therefore therefore? Right? We have to ask ourselves, what's it there for? Warren Wearsby states, Paul was basing his exhortations to duty on, on the doctrines in the first three chapters. The Christian life is not based on ignorance, but knowledge. And the better we understand Bible doctrine, the easier it is to obey Bible duties. He goes on to say, and I love this, when people say, don't talk to me about doctrine, just let me live my Christian life, they're revealing their ignorance of the way the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer. He goes on to say, it makes no difference what you believe just as long as you live, right? Is a similar confession of ignorance. It does make a difference what you believe because what you believe determines how you behave. You got that? What you believe determines how you behave. So the word therefore here in verse 1, it actually indicates what Paul's about to say was based on what he already said. Chapters 4 through 6 state the implications of chapters 1 through 3. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul, as we talked about, Paul presents these rich spiritual blessings that God has given every Christian. And as we see in chapter 1 of Ephesians, those who have Jesus as their Savior, we went through this, those that have Jesus as their Savior, and it lists out, I'm going to give you some of these, those that have Jesus as their Savior have been what? Have been adopted, we see that in verse 5, redeemed and forgiven in verse 7, sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14, raised with Christ in chapter 2 verse 6, saved by grace in verses 8 through 9, brought near to God in verses 13, reconciled with other believers and with God in verses 14 through 16, made citizens of heaven and are members of God's household in verse 19, and parts in God's temple, verses 20 through 22. It's because of all of these blessings that Paul makes his actual request here. He says, he basically is saying, in effect, here is the appropriate response to what God has done for you. Paul also reminds us that he's a prisoner of the Lord. 
The request he's about to make come from someone suffering in jail for the sake of Jesus. So we should give special consideration to his words and to his petitions. I was just down in Birmingham, Alabama recently as I did an Amazon project down there. And a good friend of mine, Tim Blair, who, who lives there in Birmingham, he gave me a little tour of the area in downtown Birmingham where all the civil rights riots occurred and where the bomb went off at the 16th, Avenue, or 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute's, you know, it's right downtown. Uh, it's a large interpretive museum and research center that really depicts the struggles of the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s. It was an incredible experience that seeing all this firsthand, and you're asking me, why am I saying this? Well, I thought of Martin Luther King's famous letter from the Birmingham jail, okay? And he wrote back in 1963. And King's letter would have been a lot less powerful if it was a um, letter from a Birmingham diner, okay? <laughs> it wouldn't have the same effect, right? Certain circumstances that God puts us in allow us to speak the truth into people's lives so much more when God asks us to do it and where to do it. So here Paul, he's in prison. He's begging us, pleading with us, urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which we have been called. Webster's Dictionary says that to walk is to pursue a course of action or a way of life, conduct oneself, how we behave. So in other words, it is a person's way of life or ethical pattern of behavior. If you were to go all the way back in Scripture, back to Genesis chapter 5, you would see in verse, you would see the story of Enoch. In chapter 5, verse 22, it says this, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. He walked with God for 300 years. It was a way of life for him. We can see it time and time again throughout Scripture. People like Noah, if you were to look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, There are generations, there, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Or look at Abram in Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Another man was Isaac, Genesis 48, 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day. Being in the commercial real estate industry, we usually have to find various partners for our projects, whether that's capital partners, whether it's partners to help build, whatever it may be. And I've always liked to use the phrase, we have to walk before we run. We have to walk before we run. Get to know you a little bit, okay? In other words, let's just take some things a little slowly. If we were to go out right now and walk out on Green Hill Road, and I took two other people with me, and we were up on the sidewalk, and I said to one of them, okay, I want you to run as fast as you can from here to the end. I want you to jog as fast as, or right behind, and I'll walk, okay? And that'd probably be what happened anyway, but... Uh, <laughs> The person who's running is going to get to the end point first, right? The second person is going to be the jogger, and I'd be last. However, as I'm walking, I can take more things in. I can see my surroundings more. 
I can see what's going on around me. If I took Caleb with me and we were walking down the road, we're talking, we're sharing as we're going. We're not going so fast, right? I think of that, the word walk in scripture is a good metaphor for a person's way of living because it suggests this active kind of moment by moment progress towards a chosen destination along a chosen path with maybe chosen travel companions, right? When we're walking with God, we aren't just reading the Bible to see how fast we can get through it, right? We're taking our time. We're soaking it up. We're soaking it in, applying it to our lives. In this verse, Paul says, that's what a Christian walks, his behavior. It should be worthy of his calling. The word worthy was originally associated with scales on which one side balanced the other. So I'd like to take a moment. You're probably looking at this bag up here and you're going, are we getting chicken fingers? <laughs> Under your chair, you get a chicken finger. No. <laughs> uh, here's a scale, okay? Everybody remember these vintage scales, right? And I thought of this this week as I was uh, preparing for this message. And on the one side, over here, we could begin to start placing the blessings, all the blessings that God has freely given you in Christ. You could watch this side sink, start to sink with the weight of your forgiveness, your redemption, your justification, your spiritual, your, 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 your spiritual uh, rebirth, your adoption into God's family, your coming resurrection, and your future life in heaven in the very presence of God. How low can that really go, right? If I added the cross, it would sink even lower, wouldn't it? Because all of these blessings are free for you because of the cost that God had with his son, Jesus. God's blessings are precious, they're priceless, and they're weighty, okay? Now, if you ask yourself, what type of life is worthy of this? What can I do to bring the scales kind of back into balance? What should my values, my priorities, my behaviors be to help offset the grace of God in Christ? Clearly, we can never repay what God has done for us. We can, however, commit ourselves to walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling. But what does that mean exactly? Paul's going to dedicate these last three chapters of Ephesians to outline how we can begin to live our lives worthy of our calling as Christians. Okay, <laughs> little side note here. I bought this scale on Amazon this week. And it came in the mail, but you'll notice the top is completely welded, okay? And so the scales don't move, all right? Talk about your all-time backfire. <laughs> um, but as I thought about it, as I looked at the scale and I thought about this more, isn't that exactly what the world looks like? They look at this, the world wants us to believe that it shouldn't matter how much Christ has done for us. In fact, what we do, we could possibly outweigh what Christ has done for us. It's all equal in the world's eyes. In fact, the world's eyes, the scales would be, be maybe tilted in the opposite direction. It's entirely untrue. Don't let the world tell you that, okay? So I kind of went off on a tangent there, but as I thought about that, I said, maybe we can use it after all. But back to the passage. You'll notice that the very first thing that Paul tells us to do is live in visible, loving unity with other Christians. Paul begins by stating three qualities 
that should characterize every believer to enable them to walk in unity with one another. He's now focusing on the local body, the church. And I love how Paul doesn't, he doesn't just come out and get all angry or jump all over us and and dictate a command to us. Remember, folks, he's in prison. And he's encouraging his readers. He's urging us. Look at verse 1. What does he say here? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Folks, he says this with love. He says this with tenderness. He says this with grace. And why does he say it this way, you think? Because it's the same way that we are to talk to and treat other fellow believers. When we get to verse 2, he begins to show us the how we are to treat others. The first of these three qualities is humility. A lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of being high-minded, conceited, or prideful. Okay, Paul starts with humility because pride is the primary source of disunity and division, especially in the church. Proud people prioritize themselves and insist on being accommodated. When such people get around others, their egos, their selfishness, make them insensitive to others. They're quick to insult, quick to feel insulted, so they create conflict wherever they go. Please do not look around the room. I mean that. For there to be any hope of loving unity in an intimate intimate community, there must be humility. The key to loving relationships, whether between spouses, friends, or believers, is to put others before themselves. I, I fail in this area all the time with Karen and those around me. My selfishness always seems to get in the way. Paul provides the prescription in his letter to the Philippians, though in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, it says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have the prescription. Paul's given us the prescription here, but now you got to read the label and found out, find out the how. Okay? And you see, if we voluntarily, has to come from us, voluntarily humble ourselves. We won't feel slighted by others if we demand nothing from others. Christians must be humble if they're to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. The second quality of a worthy Christian walk is gentleness. Treating others with love, tenderness, kindness. Thought about a a young child, okay, maybe a toddler, and they're reaching out to touch a baby. And the parents sit there and they're like, softly, 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 right? And they take the child's hand, they kind of slowly treat how, you know, teaching the kid how to treat delicate objects delicately, right? In the same way, 
Christians, we should be treating others softly. Why? Because egos are fragile. They're fragile. And delicate people require a delicate touch. This applies to the words we choose. Maybe it's the tone we use, as well as our body language and facial expressions. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we want our speech to be especially courteous and considerate, planning in advance the best tone and timing to discuss potentially upsetting topics. We're to be gentle if we're walking in a manner worthy of their calling. You know, as elders here at Bethany, we try to do this all the time. We pray about a person that we need to meet with, and, and, and maybe we, we also pray how we should approach the situation, how to approach it gently, how to approach it cautiously, and what words we should use when we meet with these individuals. We all need to do that. Third, we must interact with others with, others, with patience. As the church comes across various situations that are ugly, and we will, we all need to approach them without being provoked ourselves. The word patience means here having a long fuse, okay? And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's this, I hope that creates this kind of helpful image in a sense of potentially explosive people with these fuses, right, of varying lengths. And as Christians, we want our fuses to be long, and damp, and fireproof, okay? The Bible warns us about being quick-tempered. In James 1, 19 through 20, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I love this quote. We live in an irritating world with irritating people and have been raised to be irritable. Isn't that the truth? Think about it. People here today are more offensive. They're more, they're more offensive and so much more easily offended. And in contrast, Christians, we must cultivate the ability to stay calm and steady when they encounter unsettling people or upsetting circumstances around us. Christians must be patient if we're to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. After reading through verses 1 and 2, Paul has shown us the standard of our walk and the three qualities of our walk. And now he's going to present two means of walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When I show tolerance to someone today, it means refusing to judge their behavior or values or views. Let me say, though, that's the world's view of what tolerance is. Biblically, and there is a difference, showing tolerance means to tolerate the intolerable to bear the unbearable, to endure the unendurable. It is truly patience put into practice. And we cannot show tolerance in love where there is resentment. We can't show tolerance in love. Love has to be the motive behind our patience in the manner which we display our patience. Let me just say, that is extremely difficult to do. Extremely difficult to do. I don't know one person that that comes easy for. They're just doing a parenting class here today, started that. And marriage and parenting 
is God's way of teaching loving tolerance. I think you'd agree, it doesn't take long for a wedding to become a marriage. Some of you got it. Even on the honeymoon, both spouses begin to realize how different the other person is. All right? It takes a bit longer for them to realize that you can't change the other person. And God uses the resulting, I hate to say this word, forgive me, Karen, irritation and frustration. And that's not on her. I'm just saying that's what happens in our marriages, right? We can get irritated. We can get frustrated. To develop what? Patience. You may not have thought about this, but that actually hap- that, that by, by going through all that in your early marriage, it actually helps us prepare for what lies ahead to have children. Okay? Where the lessons learned in the boot camp of marriage get utilized consistently in that long, enduring time frame of raising kids and child rearing. These same lessons, these same patience and tolerance must be employed in our, other, in our interactions with other believers as well. Christians must show tolerance for one another in love if they're going to be worthy of their calling. Walk in a manner worthy of their calling. The second means by which we walk worthy of our calling is to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3 contains an action, an object, an attitude, and an evidence. The action is to preserve. This means to guard and keep something from being corrupted, damaged, lost, or destroyed. Christians are not called to create unity. Let me repeat that. Christians are not called to create unity. Paul didn't say, believers of the world unite. He didn't say that. He tells us, To do what? Protect the unity that God has already provided. We don't need to create anything. God's already provided it. God unites Christians and we're called to progressively live out in practice what's already true of us in Christ. The object here is the unity of the Spirit. That is the unity created by the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit identifies believers with Christ and incorporates them into the body of Christ. As the Holy Spirit unites believers with Christ, he unites them with other believers in Christ. All Christians are members of the Christ's body, fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom, and fellow family members in God's household. The problem is, we don't live that way. We act like a body with an autoimmune disease that attacks itself. We live like citizens in a civil war. We fight, even though we're family, but the fact that Christians live in conflict and division doesn't deny the fact that they are, in fact, united. The Spirit creates the unity, and we must be diligent to preserve it. Diligence is the attitude with which we approach preserving unity. Webster Dictionary defines diligent as characterized by steady, earnest, and energetic effort. We often associate the word maybe with an athlete, right, who makes the committed 
concentrated effort to, to achieve success in some way. Paul wants us in the same attitude and approach to preserving our Christian unity. We need to strategize. We need to strive. We need to, to uh, sacrifice to guarantee success. And unity requires hard work. It's not something that comes easy. Christians may be saved sinners, but we remain sinners nonetheless. And sinners are just plain hard people to live with. We are. I was going to ask for an amen. Thank you. <laughs> Therefore, we must be diligent to preserve unity. Because make no mistake, make no mistake, people, the devil is diligently trying to divide us. The evidence of this diligence is what? It says in Scripture, it is the bond of peace. As we follow Paul's prescription for a worthy walk, our relationships are going to flourish in the loving harmony that God intends for them to be. Our marriages, our families, our neighborhoods, our friendships, our schools, our workplaces, our communities will be loving, enjoyable, rewarding. Peace and harmony are evidence that believers are diligently preserving the unity established by the Holy Spirit. Before we move on, though, I want to make five observations about the first three verses. And we'll go through this quickly. First, Paul assumes that Christians will live their lives in loving fellowship with other believers. God intends Christians to live in community with one another. The Bible knows nothing of Christians living in isolation from other Christians. We are people of God, the family of God, and the body of Christ. And so we must live our lives in community with what? One another. That's why it's so important for all of us to be here at church on Sunday mornings and be involved in small groups and Bible studies and ministries that we have going on, serving with one another. Because we are the body of Christ. We're the family of God. We need one another. Second, Paul assumes it'll be challenging for Christians to live their lives in loving fellowship with other Christians. Do you think he hit it on the head? <laughs> Paul is well aware of our sinful, selfishness lives, and it makes it hard for us to get along with others, even other Christians. This is why he gives us these commands, because he knows that we'll neither develop these qualities nor use these means on our own. We can't. Third, Paul assumes that Christians can overcome the challenges of living and loving fellowship with other Christians. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us these commands. But as in every area of the Christian life, we are dependent upon God to live in unity with other sinners. Love, peace, gentleness, patience are among the fruits of the Spirit, right? Humility, tolerance, and diligence are also the Spirit's work in our lives. So we can walk... <coughs> in that loving harmony, worthy of our calling, but only by God's grace. Fourth, it's the sinful neglect of some that requires the diligent obedience of others. When people are proud, not humble, others must be gentle, or they may prick their fragile egos. When people are harsh, not gentle, others must be patient. When people are quick-tempered, not patient, others must be tolerant. Finally, God treats us in a manner that he demands 
how we treat others. God is gentle. God is patient. God is tolerant, loving, humble. Therefore, we have the perfect example to show us what a worthy walk looks like. We continually experience the love and grace that God expects us to show others. Having given the call to walk in unity in verses 1 through 3, Paul next explains the basis of walking in unity in verses 4 through 6. He now declares seven ones grouped around these uh, three persons of the Trinity. Christian unity is based on nothing less than what? One spirit, one Lord, one God, and there can be no firmer foundation on which to base our unity. The one body that Paul refers to is the church of which Christ is the head. We saw this back uh, early on in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. The idea, this idea of a single body made up of diverse parts is familiar to all of us, right? Our head tells our hands to serve our mouths and we obey it, right? So our body can survive. Paul provides this image of unity that's always close at hand so that every time we feed ourselves, we're reminded that Christians are the body of Christ and therefore we must live in loving unity with the rest of the body. It's the one spirit who places us in one body, in the one body of Christ, and who gives us spiritual gifts that we can fill, fulfill our roles in, this, in the body. The Holy Spirit also instills these virtues such as gentleness, patience, and love, which are essential to preserving the unity that he produces. You know, whatever our disagreements are, and we, we have them, all Christians are united because we are partakers of one of the one spirit. We are all partakers of the one spirit, so we are united. Paul breaks up this chain of ones to remind us that of the one hope of our common calling. This is not the first time Paul has connected hope and calling. In Ephesians 1, verse 18, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Thus, it's this calling that produces the hope. That is, it's because we have been called by God, we have the hope of being with God. Whatever may divide us, and there are things that will divide us, all Christians are united because we all have the same hope. We are bound for heaven. It's our true home. That's where we're going. We have that hope. The second basis for walking in unity is in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul turns from the third person, the Trinity, to the second, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this connection, he also mentions the faith that identifies a Christian with the Lord in the baptism through which our saving faith is professed. Faith and baptism identify believers not only with Christ, but also with the body of Christ, the church. Every believer comes to the same Lord the same way. All Christians are united because Christ is our Savior and Shepherd, our Prophet, our Priest, our Redeemer, and our King. We who have been saved by Him are connected with our need for Him, our love for Him, and our identity in Him. He gathers, gathers us all into one flock, one body, and one family, and we share a common name because we are all slaves of the same Christ. We celebrate a common communion because we are all participants 
in the same new covenant. The essential Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord and every believer shares this confession and commitment to Jesus as Lord of his life. And because our Lord commands us to be unified, Christians must be diligent to preserve the unity that we all have in Christ. We also share the same experience of having been baptized as a public sign of our identification with Christ and our our incorporation into his body. Faith and baptism are closely connected in the New Testament, right? And Paul associates them closely here. He does the same in Galatians 3, 26 through 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so the one Lord, as well as the one faith and the one baptism, provide this central basis for Christians to walk together in unity. In verse 6, Paul presents the third and ultimate basis of Christian unity. The specific phrase, one God, only occurs three times in the entire Bible. Malachi, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy. However, the declaration that there's only one God goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Exclusive allegiance to the one true God is listed first among the Ten Commandments, right? And was repeated twice daily by every practicing Jew. There's only one God, and he commands everyone in his church to live together in loving unity. Paul adds, and Father, to identify him as the first person of the Trinity and emphasize his authority as the one who is the source of and sovereign over everything. The word all is repeated four times in verse 6 to emphasize that God the Father is sovereign over all things, and he's actively present in all things. There can be no more enduring and unshakable basis of unity than God the Father. The term Father, it also reminds us that every Christian is an adopted child of God who belongs to the same family. In the same way, it is the same Heavenly Father who adopts us and whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded that we have siblings. You might not have thought of that before, but we do. That's why we pray our Father, and our Father demands that his children all get along in loving communion and loving unity together. So how do we apply this passage to our lives today? We must first intentionally cultivate the characters of humility, gentleness, and patience as essential, absolutely essential to our Christian walk. If we are proud, Uh, harsh, quick-tempered, then we must confess this to God and address this by his grace. Secondly, we must tolerate other Christians lovingly, not because they're tolerable or lovely, but because they're Christians. There is no brother or sister in the Lord whom we can write off, ignore, mistreat, simply because they irritate us. The most annoying siblings are still siblings. I only have one sibling. She's irritating, but I love her. And God commands us to bear with them in love. Third, we must diligently preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity was a priority for Paul as it is for God. Therefore, unity must be a priority for us. We should pray for it. We should practice it. And we should protect it by pursuing peace. 
Loving unity with other believers is absolutely essential to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When we have conflict with other Christians, we contradict our calling. Finally, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're in here today and you're not a Christian. You've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You never admitted you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Then today, would you please place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Give him your life as Savior and as Lord. God is willing to be your father, but if you reject him, you'll face him as your judge. The Spirit is willing to indwell you, but if you reject him, then you'll spend eternity apart from him in hell. But if you trust in Christ alone as the one, only one who can give you a right standing before a holy God, then you'll become a child of God and a member of his family. I'd like to close by com comparing unity in the church to a unity in marriage, something we didn't see in the opening story that I read. It is God who unites a man and a woman as a husband and wife. And this union is so sacred that Jesus warns in Matthew 19, 6, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The couple, they enter the church separately, right? But they exit the church together, sharing the same name as they share the same life. But becoming one is easier than living as one. And so they must work hard at walking in a manner that's worthy of their calling as husband and wife. They must cultivate humility, gentleness, and patience. They must be tolerant of one another in love, diligently preserving, uh, preserving the unity that God has established. They are one, and therefore they must live as one. They must walk in a manner worthy of their calling as a married couple. In the same way, God, it's God who unites men and women as one body. And this union is again so sacred that Jesus' warning still applies what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We enter the church separately as one, <clears throat> as each one of us receives Christ as our Savior. But we, ex we exist, we exist in the church together, sharing the same name as we share the same life, but becoming one is easier than living as one. So we must work hard at walking in a manner that's worthy of our calling as Christians. We must cultivate humility, gentleness, patience. We must be tolerant of one another in love, diligently preserving the unity that God has already established for us. We are one, and therefore we must live as one. And so, ask you all this morning, and myself, let's commit to walking in unity so that we can, we can walk a manner that's worthy of of the calling for which you and I have been called. Let's close in prayer. Lord, please grant us the ability to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as you do, Lord. We look to you for the strength to be humble, gentle, patient with one another. We fail so many times. Helps to tolerate each other's faults and strive to maintain the unity that Jesus purchased for us, his church. Please remind us, Lord, of the one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. Let us appreciate our one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let us obey the one God and Father of all. And Lord, as we go apart our separate ways today, Lord, let us unite, unite us in practice as, we, as, we, as you have united us in truth. And Lord, help us to love one another, be patient and tolerant. And Lord, we are irritable sinners. 
that have been saved by grace. What a great example is we saw your son walk on, the, walk on this earth. Showed all those characteristics, Lord, and we have so much further to go. But Lord, we do love our body here at Bethany. We thank you for the church as a whole. We pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be unified as we go apart our separate ways today. In Jesus' name.